Well, we're going to read the Bible now. Uh, we're going to read two passages. Uh, we're going to read Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 9 and Matthew um, 3, 16 to 4, 11. So I'd love you to open those up. Um, we'll read Deuteronomy first. Uh, if you don't have a physical Bible with you there, uh, I would encourage you to. But if you don't, you can go to BibleGateway.com or uh, the, the text will come up on the screen. Um, but you've got to make sure you have something for, um, for when Richard takes, it, takes us through it as well. So Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 to 9. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then that in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord, your God, disciplines you. And then from Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee, Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Uh, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. <clears throat> it is proper for you to do uh, this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at the moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, he's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. Do you remember Friday, March the 13th, 2020? On that day, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced that because of the coronavirus, from Monday onwards, gatherings of more than 500 people would be banned. The Australian F1 Grand Prix was cancelled. And on that weekend, our church, we met for church. But all the talk was about what would happen. How bad would this be? And from then on, everything happened quickly. That Monday, our senior staff met and made the early call to cancel physical church and go online. Studio building began that day. 
And sure enough, smaller gatherings were banned. 100 people, then 10, then total lockdown. We had mask shortages, test shortages, toilet paper gate scandal, the whole thing. And now we're in over two years now, two years on, and we're in this strange place where um, COVID is in some ways behind us. It's in the rearview mirror. Uh, it's something that's happened, but in other ways, it's still with us, overwhelming hospitals or impacting families. But some of us are starting to think at this time, like how did we respond to the trials and tests and temptations of that time? How resilient were we? What happened with our physical health? What happened with our mental health? What's been the impact on our relationships? Uh, when I was at our mid-year conference speaking with first year uni students, I realized that here were people who've just been through two years of school at home and camps canceled and formals canceled. And, and they were kind of stunned to find themselves at an actual conference with real people. But a bigger question than the physical and health impacts is what happened uh, with our godliness during COVID? How did we go then with obedience and purity and dependence on God with all the trials of isolation and the trials of uncertainty? I remember early in the pandemic, uh, my brain went on a crazy spiral. Uh, at some point I was certain that church finances would collapse and I would lose my job and I have to go and start working as a doctor at John Hunter. I used to be a doctor. And then because my skills were so out of date and so poor, I'd be a terrible doctor and I wouldn't be able to do a proper history. I wouldn't be able to read an ECG or get a cannula in and I would not be respected by my peers. And, and then kind of all my worst fears would be confirmed. It was this uh, crazy downward spiral uh, that was totally missing things like faith, prayer, dependence on God, like, and that was understandable in one sense, but in another sense, it was a kind of uh, moral failure in the moment. And of course, that was only the start. COVID exposed various insecurities and sins over that two-year period. So how did, how did you go during COVID? Did you find yourself with new temptations and sins? Did you respond with faith and growth? Or did things go backwards with God? I ask that because in our passage from Matthew today, we see Jesus go through a major trial himself. Isolation, deprivation, temptation. He had a genuine period of testing. And what we'll see as we go through Matthew chapter 4, we'll see a contrast between his reaction and ours during trial. And we'll see why Jesus is the key for us in our experience of temptation and moral failure. So let's think about the context for a moment for this passage. This, this is series is from Matthew 1 to 4. It's called Introducing the Messiah. And that's what's been happening. We've been meeting the Messiah. Uh, last week, we saw Jesus uh, baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. We're meeting the Messiah. And at that moment of his baptism, we're, we're shown the, it's really interesting, we're shown the inner life of the Trinity, God who is three and one. We see the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus, the Son of God, equipping him and commissioning him for his task, while at the same time, God the Father spoke for all of us to hear, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. At that moment, it's like we've stumbled into a Zoom meeting within the Trinity, God the Father expressing his love and favour for the Son, uh, which is 
all happening before, even before the cross. His love and favor is there. The spirit is descending and alighting upon the son who is committed to righteousness and obedience. It's just a crazy moment of uh, a revelation, deep revelation into the inner life of God as we look on. But then immediately we come to chapter four. In chapter four, the son of God is led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Baptism in water is followed by isolation in the desert. And it's interesting, this passage must have been reported to Matthew by Jesus himself. No disciples were there. Uh, so it's like we've got a private view of this event. It's like someone has set up a microphone and a camera and we're watching on. And what we see is an intense time of suffering and temptation for our Savior. So let's look into what's happening here. The setup itself, the setup is uh, designed to make us think that Jesus is imitating the history of Israel in miniature. Like we've seen that in the way he went down to Egypt in chapter two, just like Israel. And in chapter three, he passed through the Jordan River, just like Israel. Now here he is experiencing a time of trial in the desert, just like Israel. Now, several things in the passage make this obvious. The location is the wilderness, uh, more like the desert. And that's where Israel wandered for uh, after they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. The period is 40 days, just like uh, the, the 40 years that Israel wandered. There's a, a comparison there. Jesus fasted, just like Moses fasted on Mount Sinai. Uh, the purpose is testing or tempting, just like we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And the verses that Jesus quotes in this passage all come from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which was written down by Moses in the wilderness as Israel wandered. So this is about Jesus repeating the story of Israel. And the question now as we come to this passage is, is will Jesus pass the test in the wilderness? Israel failed. They sinned in various ways. They ended up with disaster and death. But will Jesus obey? Will he be the true Israel? Well, let's look at each test in turn. Now, the first test includes the setup. Let's read one, verses 1 to 3. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, this is full on. Well, firstly, it's the isolation. 40 days of being completely alone. Uh, like COVID taught me that I go a bit crazy after three days. After 40 days, I would be a mess. Then 40 days of fasting. And that is intense as well. I've watched that show Alone, uh, where people go for ages without food. And you see in each season, there are scenes where the contestants despair. They cry out. They get bizarre food dreams and fantasies about things, uh, of, of food, of, of cheese, of all things, things like that. Uh, they go nuts. It's in incredible uh, to, to go without food for that time. And indeed, in verse 2, uh, it says there, he was hungry. And like, this is a talk about a massive understatement. He was hungry. And we do need to get this because even though Jesus was truly divine, true God, he was truly man. And he suffered just like we would have in that situation. Temptation for Jesus is not easier for him than it is for us. Temptation and testing were just as hard for Jesus, if not more. So never let yourself think that it was easy for Jesus to be godly. He was tested to the limit. And just at this point, when Jesus is stricken by hunger and weakness and loneliness, the devil comes to him. Satan comes to Jesus for evil purposes, just as he is most vulnerable. 
And isn't it true that the devil does the same thing for us? When we are physically and mentally vulnerable, the temptation to sin is strong. Uh, you might have heard me mention in another talk uh, the acronym BALT, B-A-L-T, uh, perhaps in relation to internet purity, but it stands for bored, angry, lonely, and tired. Uh, these are the times when temptation is hardest and we so often fall. Uh, and I think we could add hunger to that, to that list, to be hungry. Um, it's certainly the case for me these days at events. Look, I always eat big beforehand because if I get hungry, I tend to sin. I will knock over women and children to get to the food. It's terrible. Uh, but these are when we are vulnerable and Satan does come to us. But uh, with Jesus, the devil, sure enough, he turns up, he comes with the test and he says this, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Simple line, but there's a lot in it. I think three things stand out for me in these words of Satan. Uh, firstly, there is no respect from Satan towards Jesus. Uh, there's no greeting, there's no use of Jesus' name, just straight in with disrespect or, or even contempt. Uh, Satan despises God and his servants. That's true. Secondly, on these words, Satan casts doubt on the reality of God's word. God had only just said at the baptism that Jesus was his son. Now Satan comes in with a big if. If you are the son of God, He's casting doubt. He's creating confusion. Uh, this reminds us of Satan's temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, uh, where he says, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So here we have Satan using his standard strategy. Can God's word really be trusted? And thirdly, Satan is urging Jesus to prove his status by using his power for his own desires. He's urging Jesus to prove his status by using his power for his own desires. He's saying, turn these stones into bread. Feed yourself. Don't wait for God's provision. Don't wait for his timing. Take what you want now. He's inviting Jesus to satisfy his desires through power rather than wait for God's provision and timing. So can you re resonate with this first temptation? Doubt over God's word opportunities to use your power or wealth uh, to serve the desires of your heart rather than waiting from, uh, for God's provision and God's timing? Can you resonate with that? I mean, it is the story of our world, isn't it? Every sexual harassment scandal or corruption scandal, it's about using power to take. Every time a Christian leader falls from their position, uh, this is what's happening. It's in our world and it's in our lives as well. So how does Jesus respond? I mean, if it was me, I would have failed long before this point. Those stones would have been baked sourdough rolls by about day three. But look at verse four. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. How good is that? Jesus answers with scripture. It's Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Uh, and again, it's another Trinitarian moment. God the Son listens and obeys the spirit-breathed words of his Father. And at this point, the word is his weapon against the devil. And what does Jesus mean by quoting this verse? Well, I think he's saying that bread and our physical needs are not all there is to life. We don't live on bread alone. What's more important is what God says in the Bible. What God says there brings life. True life consists in obedience to the Bible. And that's what Jesus will stick to. Jesus obeys his father. 
Well, let's look at the second temptation. And now at this point, the devil took him to the highest point on the temple in Jerusalem. I kind of like to think here he had some kind of teleporter. Really, the lack of teleporting technology is where science is letting us down, don't you think? Like we've got virtual reality, we've got self-driving cars, we've got spray on cheese, but where is the teleporting technology? But anyway, that's where they go, off to the temple. And once again, Satan tempts Jesus in verse 6. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Right, once again, Satan casts doubt on God's word. He says, if you are the son of God. But this time he also imitates Jesus in a way by quoting scripture, in this case, Psalm 91. And how crazy is that to happen, that Satan is enticing someone to sin by quoting scripture? Have you ever used the Bible to justify sin? Has everyone, anyone ever tried to tempt you to sin by quoting scripture? That's a particularly satanic strategy. But I have to say, uh, for this temptation, I have kind of struggled with what's uh, tempting about it. Um, like I've got no interest in skydiving. I've got no interest in bungee jumping, cliff diving, base jumping. I'd be like, uh, no thanks, not at all tempting. Uh, job done, passed, what's next? But there must be something here that is enticing. And I think what's going on is that Satan is enticing Jesus to try to manipulate God into an experience rather than living by faith. Satan's trying to entice Jesus to try and manipulate God into an experience rather than living by faith. He's saying, take the jump, make God do something amazing and get that experience, get that feeling of favor and blessing. And I, th I think we do the same when we demand experiences of blessing from God. Or when we do foolish things and expect God to bring us happiness rather than the natural consequences of our foolishness. For example, we, we pursue wealth or career goals at the expense of the spiritual health of ourselves and our family, and then demand that God give us and our family Christian joy and maturity and perseverance. Or we date someone according to their appearance or status uh, rather than their character and expect God to bless that relationship. Or we choose not to actively participate in church or to serve in the life of church, but still expect rich experiences of friendship at church. We demand blessing from God in foolishness and sin rather than living in faith and trust. So I think, yes, there is something deep to this second test. So how does Jesus respond? Well, once again, with a simple quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus is very clear. He will not test God by a demand for an amazing experience. He will not test God by foolishness. Instead, he will live by faith and in patience and in wisdom. So then we come to the last temptation. Once again, the teleporter is activated and the devil takes Jesus to a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And I'm imagining here somehow he's seeing all the luxuries, insta-worthy houses, spectacular food and drink, all the entertainment, the gadgets, the gear, all the power. During the last holidays, I had the chance to briefly experience luxury at a very expensive restaurant at the uh, Crown Hotel in Sydney, Mangaroo. Uh, thankfully, other family members were paying. Uh, but there were six of us and we had an eight course meal and every dish was amazing. 
there were table displays, there were different plates and bowls, and for each serving, a crowd of assistant chefs dressed in white would come out into the room, and there would be one from, for each diner, and they would circle around the table, and then at exactly the same time, place the dish down in front of us. And then they would take a little jug of broth or yus or, and pour it over the dish. Uh, and then one of them would announce and explain the dish. It was incredible. And it was just a little glimpse into top-level luxury. Well, here Satan is offering all this luxury and more to Jesus. But there's just one small condition. It's only if he will bow down and worship him. Satan's temptation goes even deeper here, though, because Jesus, who is the Son of God, actually already has authority over the whole world. He already does rule the world. And after his death and resurrection, all authority will be explicitly given to him. So what's happening is, in a sense, Satan is offering what is already his. But what he's doing is inviting Jesus to bypass the cross, to bypass suffering in that way, to bypass his death on his way to glory. He's saying, forget it. Forget all that. Here is the glory now. Worship me and take what is yours. That's what he's saying. But so really, while it looks good, this is a bad deal that looks good. And later on in the Gospels, Satan will again try and distract Jesus from his mission through the words of Peter or by bystanders at the cross. So this temptation, in contrast to the other one, is very easy to resonate with, isn't it? We know the temptation to reject God for the sake of earthly pleasures. This happened to a guy in the Bible called Demas, according to 2 Timothy 4. Just a, a little couple of verses. He said, Paul says, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We are easily led away from God by pleasure and power in this world. And what amazes me really is not, not how much it uh, takes to tempt people, but how cheaply we can be bought. Often all it takes is a, is a few hundred dollars or a few thousand or, or a brief sexual encounter or a few minutes of fame. Everyone has a price, but our price for rejecting God is surprisingly low. But what does Jesus say in response to this test? Well, he says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's from Deuteronomy 6.13. And I think at this point, Jesus has had enough. He commands Satan, get away. Jesus says emphatically, his worship, his service will be to God alone. Total loyalty, fiercely defended. And so off Satan goes, defeated for now, but will be returning soon. In the matching version of this in Luke's gospel, it says he left him until an opportune time. And finally, angels come and care for Jesus in verse 11. It's kind of like the rescue team arrives. The father shows his love and care for his precious son who has endured such hardship. So let's think about what this is all about. What is this narrative, this story about Jesus' temptation in the, in the wilderness about? Well, we're just going to look at two big ideas about Jesus and then finally wrap it up with some ideas for us uh, in our own temptation and testing. Now, the first big idea is that Jesus is perfectly obedient in temptation. He's perfectly obedient in temptation. Even though he was isolated and hungry and physically weakened, he remained completely obedient. Even though he had Satan right next to him, tempting him in three different ways, he remained completely obedient. 
He's perfectly obedient as the true Israel in the wilderness, the true Messiah. He had succeeded where Israel failed. He is the perfect obedient son of the father, anointed with the spirit, led by the spirit and perfectly obedient to the father, particularly to the words of the father breathed out by the spirit and written in the Old Testament. Again, we see the perfect relations of the Trinity, but it's perfect obedience. Now, this, the, the reality of this is so important for us because uh, our efforts against temptation are marked by failure as much as success. We give in, we give up, we sin accidentally, we sin deliberately. We are disobedient and sinful. And the mistake would be to read this passage and think, oh, okay, all right, I, I need to be more like Jesus. I need to resist the devil. I need to quote scripture. I need to be strong like Jesus. No, no, that would be a total disaster. That would only multiply our misery as sinners. That's a total misread of this passage. What we need to do instead is cling to Jesus, the only perfect, obedient Savior, who even now is risen from the dead and is alive. We need to cling to him. And, and how do we do that? Well, we need, to, we need to think about him. We need to remember him and meditate upon his perfect, lifelong obedience. 2 Corinthians sums it up, chapter 5, just with these words. He had no sin. So we need to think about him and his obedience more than our own failings. And we need to put our faith in him. We need to trust that through his life, death and resurrection, our sin is paid for and his obedience and his righteousness becomes ours. Romans 5.19 says, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteousness. So this passage is not about us doing better in life. Uh, the way to deal with our disobedience is not to imitate Jesus, but to receive the blessing of his righteousness and obedience by faith. So please just give up on your efforts to be a good person. You will never be a good person. You will never be perfect like Jesus. Instead, put your faith in the only good and perfectly obedient saviour. Well, that's the first big idea from this passage. The second big idea is that Jesus, through this, is equipped to be our effective high priest. Because he's experienced suffering and temptation, he is equipped to be our perfect and effective high priest. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There we are. Like Jesus had a human body and soul like we do. Jesus suffered in this life just as we do. Jesus was tempted just as we are, yet he did not sin. He fully experienced human life. He learned obedience through trials and temptations. And Hebrews says, therefore, he's fully equipped to be our priest. He can be our representative towards God and our helper. So are you caught in sin? 
Uh, are you suffering in temptation? Well, Matthew shows us Jesus' obedience here. And Hebrews tells us to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And we can only do that because of Jesus. And simply put, this means prayer. It means prayer. And our prayers might be stumbling and uncertain and unimpressive. Uh, sometimes we might be so weak that we need others to pray with us and for us. But prayer is what we must do to approach God's throne of grace. Because Jesus is our effective high priest. Uh, so then, well, finally, what uh, should we do in our own temptation then? <laughs> Once we have cried out to Jesus and depended on him for our righteousness, what do we do? And we could be talking about um, trials and temptations that have come up through COVID or sins that are exposed at that time or, or fresh challenges that have come up since then. What do we do? Well, yes, I think we can learn from Jesus here and seek to imitate him in our own faulty ways not as a way of saving ourselves or reaching perfection, uh, but as part of loving and worshiping God. And obviously we've touched on a few ideas as we went through each temptation, but here are three strategies common to each that we can apply uh, in our own lives. Firstly, what are the lies or deceptions that Satan's telling me in the moment of temptation? Uh, you know, because Satan, he lied to Jesus about the reliability of God's word. He tried to confuse it. He, he tried to trick Jesus into misreading his mission. He offered bad deals that looked good. What are the lies Satan is telling you in temptation? Now, I'm not talking about a physical presence or an audible voice, but uh, what thoughts does he send your way? Is it doubt over God's word? Is it a misreading of God's word? Is it, is it a bad deal that looks good? Uh, something that promises pleasure and respect or happiness that, that, that will end up with something else. Uh, just as an example, one of my friends uh, regularly deals with negative self-talk. Um, in a way, it's equivalent of Satan saying, did God really say? Uh, as in like, did God really say that your sins are forgiven? Did God really say that he loves you? Did God really say that he can use a person like you for his purposes? And it's been really helpful for them to realize the lies and deception going on in that moment. So this is something we can do too. What lie or lies is Satan telling me at this moment? Second strategy is uh, what true things from scripture can I remind myself of at this time? Because Jesus countered Satan's lies and deceptions with the Bible. He fought lies with truth. Uh, the Word of God really is the sword of the Spirit, as it says in Ephesians. So what true things from the Bible do you need to cling on to in the moment of temptation? Uh, let me give you another example. Like, uh, recently, um, recently, I did a good thing. I won't tell you what it was, but it was kind of a ministry thing, and it took a bit of effort, and not many people knew about it. And I was tempted to broadcast my good thing to more people so I could get praise. Uh, and Satan was telling me, I think through my, my sinful thoughts, hey, you've done a good thing. Uh, you should make sure people know. I mean, what's the point of doing it if, if nobody knows? Doing this good thing uh, for me, actually, it, it meant not doing other things. You know, I was behind it. And like Satan was saying, what if people interpret your absence as laziness? Surely you should tell people. And these are all, these are all lies. They're all thoughts designed to lead me into sin. And the Bible verse that came to my mind, it was very helpful, and was from a passage I'd read earlier that month from Matthew 6, uh, and the line there just, 
Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, I won't explain the whole passage, where it's from and everything, but here was a biblical truth. Don't lose the praise of my father for the sake of praise from people. Don't lose the praise of my father for the sake of praise from people. And that was enough for me to, to kind of send Satan away and just carry on and, and not broadcast my good deed. So what might it be for you? What true things from scripture uh, do you need to remember in the moment of temptation? And lastly, final strategy, final thing to remember is, is just that the time of temptation will eventually end. And for Jesus, this season lasted 40 days. Uh, and obviously he faced more temptations up and until, including the cross. But eventually the temptations ended. Satan left him and his father sent his angels to care for him. And likewise, our temptations and trials will also eventually end. 1 Corinthians 10 says, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So remember that God is faithful. He's not trying to harm you. He, he is working towards your spiritual maturity. And he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will provide a way out so that you can endure it. So keep fighting to stand firm and, and obeying God just a little longer. The time of relief is soon. Well, we started this talk with a reflection on COVID. How did we endure? How did we obey God during that trials of that period? And we've read here in Matthew about Jesus enduring his own period of isolation and weakness and temptation. And what we've seen is the perfectly obedient Messiah, the truly obedient Son of the Father, our faithful high priest who can help us. So the most important thing is that in the midst of our trials and temptations, let's cling to him by faith. Let's pray about that now. Lord God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we praise you for your perfection and love and unity. Thank you for revealing in this passage a glimpse of the reality of who you are from eternity. We praise you, Jesus, for your obedience to the Father in the leading of the Holy Spirit. We praise you for the faithfulness in weakness that you showed, your righteousness in temptation, and your worship in the midst of trials. Thank you that you have won for us righteousness by faith through your death and resurrection. Help us continually cling to you as our obedient saviour. Keep us from self-righteousness and, and may we come to you as our great high priest. Please help us in our weakness and our sin. Please help us in the midst of temptations. Help us fight the lies of Satan and stick closely to the truths of the Bible. And please bring us help and relief soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.